Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Hey there. I'm Jonathan McVeary, communication strategist at the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications. I had the opportunity to chat with Tamika Townsell, assistant professor of African American Studies and Media Studies at Penn State. This is the first of what we hope will become regular interviews on the Conversations podcast, where I talk to Belisario faculty members about their research and how it applies to today's media landscape. Professor Townsell's research interests include black pop culture, womanism, and feminist media studies. In this interview, I talked with her about black women's portrayals in media, a new book she's working on titled Black Girl Magic Incorporated, and how she got interested in media studies. My interest in media studies uh, started actually in, uh, while I was completing my undergraduate degree, my major was magazine journalism and I had landed an internship uh, at what was then my dream, uh, my dream place, uh, which was Essence Magazine. And um, I was assigned to the relationship section of the magazine. And I had to, um, for my first task, I had to do these man on the street interviews. And, um, I was very intrigued by the specific guidelines that my editor gave me about the look or the image that each man needed to have if he in order to fit the essence brand. And in particular, she said, you know, no men without a collared shirt. And that was, you know, getting at this idea of professionalism and And I was really interested in what that said about the broader editorial formula for that publication and how that was reflector uh, reflective of this deeper political project that Essence and other magazines which target target black women were invested in um, and how this was not just a women's magazine. It wasn't just something for fun. It wasn't just entertaining, but it was a political text that was communicating a certain ideal about black femininity and black masculinity. And I realized right away that I was, well, by the end of the summer internship, I realized I was way more interested in those questions <laughs> than I was in the assignments I'd actually been given. Great. So um, you, know, that you said it was your dream place, your dream job. I mean, was it tough to branch away from that, that area or was it just, did it feel so natural that you just kept going and didn't look back? It was somewhat difficult to venture off from that and into the uh, sort of more academic realm, but one of my mentors gave me uh, some advice and she said, look, if you go straight through to graduate school, if you complete your doctorate degree after you're done with undergrad and you don't take a break to work in between, you'll still be pretty young when you finish. And she said, look, 
no one's going to not accept you into a traditional magazine position because you went and got further education. So if you hate this, go back to your original path. And it was that flexibility, thinking about it from that perspective, which uh, gave me the boost I needed to take the leap to say, okay, I'm going to set out and completely shift gears. And this was in my senior year of college that I made this decision. I'm going to completely shift gears. And because it was so interesting to me, because I had already been asking myself these questions, this felt like it was an opportunity. Uh, the research aspect of graduate school really felt like an opportunity to explore passions that I wasn't going to be able to uh, really explore if I had taken a traditional um, magazine position at a magazine. So it, it was a, a great opportunity. Uh, and it felt like, you know, a kid, I felt like a kid on the playground. And um, so it really fit. And um, I stuck with it. Sweet. That's great. Um, so, you know, like you said, you stuck with it. I think it's safe to assume it's, it's going well. Um, can you maybe chat a little bit about uh, your path to, to Penn State and kind of the, the Bellasario College and also the uh, Department of African American Studies? So I came here in 2016. I came to Penn State in 2016, and I began at that point as a postdoctoral teaching fellow. The African American Studies Department is who initially hired me, and they had had some transitions uh, in the department and were looking for some uh, someone to fill in in a few places. Uh, I moved here with a, a partner who is in um, history and African studies. So we moved as a as a twosome, and uh, so that was that was part of the uh, where the uh, how the opportunity emerged or how I came to the attention of the African American Studies Department, and it just so happened that my expertise aligned with some gaps that they were going to have. Uh, the Belisario College came on later um, in the uh, sort of process of imagining what a position might look for me here uh, because I have my um, my uh, doctorate degrees in communication. So and given my research interest, there was an ideal fit there. So I was able to teach start off teaching COM 411, which is cultural aspects of mass media. A course that is, uh, I think of sort of as like my, my personal project uh, now uh, here at the college because I've been able to teach it every year since. And uh, so I transitioned into a tenure track position um, from the postdoc in fall of 2018. And it's been um, it's been a thrill. Uh, and one of the things that one of the sort of um, benefits of being able to make that transition into a tenure track position is being able to interact more with graduate students. Becoming a member of the graduate faculty uh, was um, a part of that transition. And that's something that I really, really uh, enjoyed. Great. Uh, what about working with grad students? Do you like? I really like being able to connect with the next generation of scholars uh, and people who are thinking about uh, they are they're already 
anticipating and thinking through questions that the field hasn't asked yet. And I really enjoy being able to um, work with someone when their ideas are still very much in that nascent stage and they it's not really even a fully formed idea yet. Uh, and they are still wondering, could this be a larger project? Could this be an article or a book or a dissertation? And um, that's really exciting to me because it's this really um, idyllic dream state. You can brainstorm anything uh, and helping them narrow down from these really wacky ideas is, is really fulfilling for me. So coming, going back to uh, your area of study, um, you study media portrayals of black women. And, you know, outside of the Essence Magazine story, was there a specific uh, incident or a moment that kind of sparked this line of research that you're kind of spending a lot of time and, and research energy on? Um, and you kind of like, what, what were some of the st stuff that you learned early on that kind of spawned this interest? So I would say that my interest in media began with magazines because they played such an important role in my life growing up. I have been going to black hair salons since I was five years old. And one of the things you do there is you read a lot of magazines. And um, these aren't magazines for kids or for even for teens. These were magazines like Essence and Ebony that were targeted for a black, um, largely, mostly female readership. So I became, um, I don't think it's too much to say, I was obsessed with these magazines. I would read the same issues over and over. And I went to graduate school knowing that I was particularly interested in, at that time, just studying more about the ideologies that undergird these magazines that I had grown up with. But a couple of things happened um, early on in my graduate school career that uh, influenced the turn that my research took and helped me um, to, to refine my project. Uh, and so that was uh, both the emergence of Michelle Obama as this um, very important uh, political figure, but also as a very important media figure in terms of the fact that she was a type of black woman in the mass media that we had never really dealt with before because she was the first uh, African-American first lady. So that was important, but at around the same time, one of the really popular news narratives that focused on black women was a narrative <clears throat> about declining marriage rates among black women. And this, uh, this occurrence was, um, researchers were looking at it and they said, oh, this is most acute among professional black women, black women who are, um, high achieving, who are successful. And that narrative, um, you know, coming out of news stories ended up spawning a whole series of different media texts from films, the film Something New, 
uh, is uh, what comes to mind um, immediately. There were ABC Nightline did a bunch of things around this. There was a town hall that they had where they invited uh, figures like Steve Harvey and Hill Harper, black men who were writing books about this to engage in um, a town hall that they titled, Why Can't a Successful Black Woman Find a Man? And so I found this fascinating, the, the, the gap between the reality of you have, for the first time, a woman who is occupying this uh, sort of ideal of femininity in the U.S., a, a black woman um, occupying that ideal. She is the sort of preeminent lady. And she is professionally successful and she is married. So she does sort of check all the boxes. Uh, but at the so at the time that she's really emerging and people are becoming just enchanted with her, um, especially black black women and, and, and the black community more broadly, you have this other narrative saying, well, this ideal is inaccessible for black women. And I was really interested in the tension between those two narratives and also in how black women in their everyday lives were making sense of this. How were they interpreting the uh, media messages surrounding Michelle Obama and surrounding this decline in marriage rates? And were they using these, uh, how were they using these narratives to decide what was possible for them um, to sort of think about a life sequence and how marriage or motherhood or their careers were gonna all fit into that. So my initial uh, research project that I took up uh, in grad school was actually looking at this myth of the single successful black woman. Sure, great. It must have been exciting to kind of see that live while it's happening, while you're doing it with, you know, Michelle Obama in office and it's, it's occurring as you're studying it, as opposed to looking back, you know, many years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really fascinating. That's one of the things that I love about studying popular culture is that the, you, you're, you're, examining a moving target it's always growing you're never done and so it's always exciting because it's such a dynamic field sweet and kind of going off that and very very broadly from your early projects the things that you're seeing now um like what are you learning and what, what are some of these takeaways that uh you are kind of providing to the literature one of the things that I'm focused on right now is how the the stories that we tell about black women in any given moment aren't necessarily new. Right now, we are living in what um, is gets discussed in public discourse as an era of black girl magic. So black girl magic is a term that gets thrown out a lot. And... Um, that term just means that it's basically the best time ever to be a black woman and black women are beautiful and powerful and strong and successful and celebrated. And um, what that very glossy, very attractive narrative obscures is the harsh realities. Uh, that black women face in the everyday. So on the one hand, yes, there is a Michelle Obama who, you know, has 
you know, the craziest book tour that you ever want to see, right? You do have Oprah, you do have these people who are breaking records, you have Beyonce, right? Uh, but at the same time, when we think about what the majority of Black women experience in terms of just basic fundamental life uh, needs, uh, when you think about uh, economic uh, depravity and, you know, Black women suffer there, when you think about uh, racial health disparities, Black women suffer greatly there. So there's all these arenas where uh, black women actually aren't, we know for sure that they aren't very powerful uh, and certainly not magical. And so um, that's something that uh, the my current book that I'm um, yet writing is, uh, is considering. And in particular that this isn't new. We actually... I think popular culture sort of runs in cycles and um, we've actually had moments like this before. My book picks up at the dawn of the 1970s where um, the magazine that I thought was my dream magazine, Essence, uh, first emerged in May 1970. And they are really the first magazine of their kind in terms of a glossy commercial magazine targeting and censoring black women. It's not the first black women's magazine, but the first to um, occupy that um, commercial uh, stratosphere, that commercial realm. And so uh, Essence magazine and a variety of other uh, media vehicles are tuning into black women consumers at the dawn of the 1970s. And we see a lot of advertising and a lot of mass media messages that are very similar to what we see today. And um, those messages are great, right? They're affirming. Uh, who doesn't like to be told that they're beautiful and strong? Uh, and, and, and that's fine as long as we understand that these messages don't always translate into political power or a kind of deeper agency that uh, it's tempting to think that they do. It's tempting to think that, oh, if we see more black women on TV or in mass media in these glamorous positions, that that means that life is better for the sort of everyday black woman, but that's not necessarily true. Right. And that kind of answers my next question, actually, but maybe there's, okay. maybe there's more to it. Um, but my question had to do with things that the media and media consumers just kind of get wrong um, about, you know, black women in the media. And is that it? Is that there's just more to the story than it looks on the screen or in a magazine? Yeah, I would say there's more to the story and there is, and it really is right in front of us, you know, if we look at it. So some of the figures, we, we do see a lot of prominent black women figures in media today, both behind the scenes and in the sort of starring roles of things. Um, so yes. There is a such thing as the Oprah Winfrey Network, right? That That is um, unprecedented in a lot of ways. Um, Oprah Winfrey is not the majority owner 
in that network. She's the face of it. So, you know, when we we, we have to just uh, look at the full picture is, is what I would always say. And, and we're not always doing that because that full picture is is a little bit more depressing than the fantasy of just the partial picture. Uh, and so I'm, I'm interested in helping to, um, you know, helping those of us who are interested in media and also interested in black women more broadly to really take that whole picture um, into account so that we can actually start thinking about, well, how do we advance more substantive change? How do we work past just more glamorous images or more progressive images to policies that serve black women to institutions um, that serve black women better beyond just them being served by uh, by media vehicles, which are important, but they aren't everything. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, your project, Magical Black Women and the Spectacle of Pain? Um, and NPR ran a series called Lost Mothers about the high rates of the and complications for mothers giving birth in the U.S. and uh, how black women's mortality rates are three to four times higher than white women. Um, and can you expand on expand on those numbers and also kind of share how Serena Williams and Beyonce fit into that? Yes. So these numbers, um, this is another big story right now, um, or has been since uh, beginning in 2017 um, as a part of that larger project that NPR and ProPublica produced. And uh, those numbers were alarming, um, not just because childbirth is not an illness, right? It's not something that you should die from. Uh, But that those numbers are higher now for Black women, given all the advancements that we have uh, in medicine and all the advancements that Black women have um, in terms of um, access to healthcare and uh, economic access that those numbers are worse now than they've been in some much bleaker areas or bleaker time periods where black women were much more um, confined and um, their relegation to a sort of second class citizenship was much more pronounced. So one of the things that was particularly um, attention grabbing about these reports about the black uh, women's mortality, maternal mortality rates, is that even if you controlled for socioeconomic status, actually the, the rates didn't improve which means that black women, even when they have access to the best medical care, because they are middle class, upper class, et cetera, that they are still experiencing these higher mortality rates. So that's what the data said, but uh, figures like Beyonce and Serena Williams put faces, very famous faces, magical faces even if um that's what that's what i think of them as these sort of uh proponents they are they are magical black women they embody that that narrative that even they were getting into these really scary dangerous um almost fatal situations um 
as a part of their recent uh, pregnancies and births. So with Serena Williams, we all know that she, you know, continued to win tennis matches even while she was pregnant and, you know, the whole world finds out she's pregnant and is just continues to be amazed by what this woman uh, can achieve and just her prowess as, as a, as a superior athlete. But when she actually goes in to have her daughter, uh, she ends up having to have an emergency cesarean section and, um, she is normally um, on an anticoagulant because, you know, she has uh, she has experience with blood clots. But because she was having that surgery, you know, she wasn't on her normal anticoagulant. And so um, they have the surgery. Things seem fine, uh, except. Things go well with the surgery, but then afterwards she's experiencing shortness of breath and all the things that are associated with the pulmonary embolism, which is something that she's familiar with because she's experienced this before. She proceeds to alert the medical staff that's serving her and they think, oh, you're just sort of feeling a little loopy. You know, you are on heavy drugs after you have a cesarean section. And so they aren't really um, acknowledging her or recognizing her as a credible witness to what's happening in her body. And um, things go really bad. Uh, and then they sort of have to rush in uh, and, and um, thankfully, you know, save her life. Uh, but that initial disbelief is um, really where the danger was. And so that's about not just how these these particular medical professionals were assessing what was going on with Serena Williams, but if we look at it more broadly, it fits into a larger practice of medical professionals not taking Black people and Black women in particular seriously. Um, there's been research that shows that um, black that medical professionals are less likely to believe uh, black patients when they complain about different afflictions or, or, or pain that they're experiencing and that actually medical professionals tend to belie believe that black people have a higher tolerance for pain. And um, a lot of that is shaping the um, that experience, right? Uh, that that um, Black women have when they are seeking medical care, where they are interacting with uh, medical practitioners. And my my interest in this is, well, okay, if people have biases that are then informing the way they do their job when it comes to these, you know, life or death scenarios with uh, black women, what is it that's shaping that communication event? Because that's what it is. It's a communication event. It's an interpersonal communication event. And what stories have we as a society told about black women that's informing the biases that medical professionals are taking into that interaction. 
So I am interested in how the stories we've told about black women um, end up preventing black women from actually being able to uh, sort of have access to medical citizenship, which is just about our capacity to access adequate medical care. And and that includes being believed when we discuss something that we are experiencing. So other research you've done examined uh, television shows that purposely cast black characters. Um, as more human and it quote countering the Hollywood convention of representing black women in extremes. So in the paper, you call this productive vulnerability. And I was wondering if you could explain what that is and share some examples. Yes. So we're used to seeing black women in particular in two extremes. And you can think about this as like the Claire Huxtable on the Cosby show, who was this ideal every woman who managed every role in her life perfectly. She was the perfect wife. She was the perfect mother. She was the perfect professional. And she managed to look very flawless while 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 doing it. And then you can think of the sort of opposite extreme of that as uh, a character, a typical character uh, on a reality show um, like uh, Love and Hip Hop, for example, is a um, one of the most popular reality shows that has a predominantly black female cast. And so these are black women characters who are deviant, who are prone to violent outbursts, who are gold diggers, who are uh, promiscuous, that type of thing. So product- productive vulnerability is a concept that I use to describe how some black women content creators are making space for messier portrayals. So these aren't pristine and unshakable characters like Claire Huxtable, but they also aren't inherently dysfunctional characters like we tend to see in, in some reality shows. Uh, so these are characters that are strong in some ways they're lacking in other ways, but all in all, they're full human beings. They don't have to be perfect in order to be worthy of attention or in order to sort of carry a show. I'm not sure if this works, but in your in your opinion, uh, going back to someone like Serena Williams, who is definitely, you know, top of her game. She's been at the top of her game for 20 years, like 15, 20 years. But when... When she kind of has to deal with a, a situation where she's like arguing with the ref, is that something where it shows her human side? Is that is that kind of knock her below magical black woman or is that different? I absolutely think that that's showing her human side. But Serena Williams, because she's not a character, you know, because she's she's her, um, you know, what we see is she gets a lot of flack for that. And so people are absolutely imposing the whole angry black woman, um, the, the angry black woman trope onto her uh, because we don't, we haven't necessarily as a society gotten to the point where we can see a black woman expressing anger in a passionate way at that sort of on that sort of platform at that level 
and understand it as just, well, she's upset, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and that's not, I think the anger piece in particular is not something that black women are exclusively subject to. That's a broader um, gender gender issue um, and, you know, sort of uh, anger is outside of femininity um, in this, um, according to sort of dominant ideals of femininity. Well, kind of going off that in terms of the, of the current climate, um, I was wondering, specific, I'm sure there's just an endless amount of conversation behind it, but specifically the media representation of, you know, Black Lives Matters um, protests, media companies and organizations that are trying to make, or they are making commitments to diversifying. And I, I like one of the ranges I saw was all those cartoons on Fox, like Simpsons and Family Guy just recently, uh-huh. made a commitment to diverse, diversify their voice actors. Uh-huh. Um, and also Penn State's Board of Trustees did the same thing. And I just, mm-hmm. in, my mind, in my mind, they're like on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, so kind of in your opinion, like how are you viewing the, how this shows up in the media? Mm-hmm. So a couple of things. One is I'll say that, again, this looks very familiar to what we saw in the late 1960s, early 1970s, which was known as the Black Power era. And it was in that moment that there were competing definitions of Black Power and what uh, the political powers at the time did was really try to sanitize black power and say well black power is about acknowledging black people as citizens to the extent that we allow them to participate in the national economy that black power is about black capitalism and black entrepreneurship and I think that that's what we're seeing a repeat um, of that where um, the Black Lives Matter is being diluted and to down to, well, black dollars matter um, and black, uh, black businesses matter and black people who follow all the rules and wait their turn and don't uh, find themselves in sort of radical movements that that those black people and those black voices matter. Uh, And so I would say that talk, of course, can be cheap, Um, but it can also be the beginning of something more substantive. And one of the challenges for black people, especially who do have uh, access to greater to, to, to sort of greater amounts of power, who are who occupy positions um, in executive leadership at different corporations, who are already sitting on boards and whatnot, you know, people who people who have the ear of those people who are in power positions. This is a moment where um, I think we can think about, well, how do we leverage that? How do we marshal this attention that we have or this visibility 
toward more profound structural change um, to make this something beyond just seeing more black people on TV or beyond just seeing Black Lives Matter written in a bunch of email signatures and in statements and in random commercials. This is still very odd to me. Even Nickelodeon does this. I have a, a, a young son and so we watch a lot of Nickelodeon and they have these just random, uh, it's kind of like a moment of silence, but it's a statement about, you know, Nickelodeon believes that Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and uh, so how do we take this moment and, and deepen it and stretch it and make it something uh, bigger that will, that's yet to be decided. But this the idea that Black Lives Matter, this isn't the first time, you know, that we've we've heard that across corporate America. Um, and it won't be the last, but hopefully we can use this moment to get at um, some, some broader outcomes. Sure. And do you happen to see any differences between the one from the 70s and, and today? There are differences for sure. Um, I mean, social media. Is well, yeah. So social media is big. I think that there were the institutional framework of black communities looked different. And so when you think about, well, who's going to call these corporations to the carpet? Who's going, who are these corporations going to be accountable to? that are making these statements. That institutional framework that existed in the 70s does not necessarily exist today. It doesn't exist in the same way. Uh, Black Lives Matter uh, is a much more, as something that emerged on social media, which is like virtual space. It's not necessarily like physical concrete space, which is not to say that it's less powerful, but it just operates in a different dimension. And so, when it comes to holding corporations accountable, if you don't have an institutional infrastructure to do that, um, that will, you know, there were tons of different community grassroots organizations, tons um, that existed uh, at that time, you know, some 50 years ago that don't exist today. And so um, I'm not sure who actually is in that position to um, sort of shepherd things forward, Um, which is not to say that, I mean, even though you did have these different figureheads and this broader institutional framework some 50 years ago, it's not to say that things, <laughs> the outcomes were necessarily ideal uh, because some would say that there were too many gatekeepers at that time to actually advance anything substantive. There were too many people who were saying, no, this is what black power means. So this is what black power means. No, 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 no. This is what it means that, you know, you you didn't have, you, you, you sort of had this very fractured movement instead of a 
uh, a cohesive um, one. But now we have a um, much more nebulous uh, movement that is harder to pin down in concrete ways. And, you know, the world is changing, so I get that. But I think what often ends up happening is that instead of material, structural changes, what we often end up with is um, more superficial changes. Because, you know, when you think about the institutions that we, the black communities do have in place to sort of police other organizations, it's like black Twitter, right? So they police a media landscape, not a... Um, not necessarily a material landscape. And so I, I, I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see then um, what, what comes of this moment. Absolutely. And I mean, speaking of the future uh, for you, you, you mentioned your book. Um, yes. Is there, what are your future research steps and where do you see yourself going? Um, you can talk about your book or any, anything you'd like. Yeah, so in um, addition to the book, which is uh, Black Girl Magic Incorporated, Mass Media and the Business of Black Womanhood, that is top of the list. Uh, In addition to that, I uh, am going to then shift gears uh, more um, in a more concrete way to further look at that project about mass media and black maternal health to look at the narratives about black women and um, and how those narratives impact our ability to have um, to access full media, full medical citizenship. One of the things I'm also excited about with that project is thinking about how social media, in particular Facebook, becomes an alternative space where black women um, get a form of prenatal care uh, because a lot of prenatal visits is talking, right? You, you know, the doctor asks you how things are going and you say, well, I'm feeling this or I'm experiencing that, right? Because the other patient, right, can't speak. So you have to speak for that patient, um, the unborn child. And because the encounters with medical personnel are uh, can be very strained. There are these private Facebook groups that are completely policed by black women where that information exchange is occurring. And the types of discourse unfolding there sounds very much like a doctor's visit in some ways, which is fascinating to me. Um, and so I'm looking at, okay, where are these, uh, where, where are these alternative communication spaces that black women create to get around, you know, what we can't seem to access in the sort of dominant public sphere. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, uh, really interested in, in being able to shift to that after I wrap up my book. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit bellisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Bellisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.